This season, we are proud to be collaborating with Puma, our firm friends in championing the culture. Puma has been at the vanguard of so many awesome happenings over the last decade, so it was only natural that we joined forces with them to keep you in the loop with all the scene happenings. From their inspiring select sessions and select stories, to their cutting-edge unique collabs and the many more that they have in the pipeline, rest assured that this season we'll be bringing you all the breaking Puma news hot off the press, with a sneaky giveaway or two thrown in for good measure. So remember to follow at Puma South Africa on Instagram and enjoy. Hashtag for all time. Hello and welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex and today I am talking to one of the founders of a London-based band that emerged as a household name in the mid-90s, courtesy of their signature chilled out electronic sound that propelled them to superstar status. With their 10th studio album on the horizon that dives into the soul of the band's genre-mashing musical heritage, he has created, alongside his partner Sky Edwards, a record that talks about finding a way through the darkest of times and emerging the other side changed but intact. I am, of course, talking about Morchiba's Ross Godfrey. Ross, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm very well. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, with a career in entertainment that spans two decades and then some, there's so much to talk about with you. But here at Text Talks, we like to take things all the way back to before the music. What are some of your earliest memories of interacting with music growing up in Kent in England? Well, neither of my parents uh, or any of my family were musical, but um, they all had great taste in music. So... I grew up in a household with an incredible record collection and from the age of, you know, sort of four or five, I remember, you know, listening to like Cat Stevens and looking at the really cool cartoon covers and um, bands like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, obviously. But um, as I grew older, I really got into kind of early rock and roll, people like Chuck Berry and old blues like uh, John Lee Hooker and Mighty Waters. And then when I wanted to uh, learn to play the guitar, I I discovered Jimi Hendrix. I mean, my dad had a load of Jimi Hendrix records and they used to scare me a bit because he would play them really loud. (laughs) And the cat would run out, you know, and and he looked a bit scary. Um, But then once I started listening to the records in earnest and started to learn to play the guitar, he became my favourite. And... um, I basically just spent most of my teenage years trying to copy how Jimi Hendrix played the guitar and joining like local bands and things like that and, and eventually um, getting the group more cheaper together with my brother. I read that you and your brother Paul made sure that you weren't doubling up on records so that you were, you you know, because obviously you were still living in the same house. So, you know, you both developed very separate tastes and then you would come back and meet up and talk about the music that you'd listen to. How how did it help to have, how did it help your musical consciousness to have Paul to feed off like that? Um, well, it's, you know, different ends of the spectrum. Paul was very much into um modern music like you know uh hip-hop and uh, electronica that was just sort of coming out in the 80s 
and he was very much into the technology. As soon as he could, he got a little recording studio together in his bedroom and and started making beats and you know and, and inviting rappers around to do things. Whereas I was kind of sitting playing an old acoustic guitar, playing blues music, and trying to find. Um, you know, like old vintage ragtime records and things like that. So it couldn't be more different. But um, at the same time, we kind of realized it all really had the same soul. It was all the same thing. You know, mm -hmm. music develops over time, but it all comes from the same place, which is like, you know, the sort of deep emotion within the human spirit. And, um, and we also found that you could mix anything together. Music works really well in that way, that things that you wouldn't normally think would work together. Um, actually, you know, once you kind of um, jam around with it, it's, it's all very supple. So um, what was handy for us was that, um, you know, that Paul would learn a lot about uh, technology and, and modern music. And, and I would learn a lot about old, more traditional musics. Uh, and so when we combined that knowledge um, and made Mochiba's first records, it, it had um, quite a lot of depth to it. So it was very beneficial. Mm. I mean, you mentioned how Jimi Hendrix was your core inspiration when you were growing up and, you know, your brother was very into hip hop. But what was it about hip hop that fired your imagination? I mean, because back then, the art, the break dancing, the fashion, like, Hip hop was still essentially raw and cool. So, what what was it about that genre specifically that stood out to you? Um, it was it belonged to our generation, which is very important. I mean, I was too late. I was born in 1976, so I kind of missed punk music, and obviously, rock and roll was the the music of our parents and. Um, Hip-hop was ours, you know, it was a whole cultural movement. Like you said, there was dancing, there was art, there was music, mm -hmm. there was um, fashion. And and so that really resonated with us. And even though we, we grew up in a small little fishing village on the coast in England, uh, we were still really into New York hip-hop. And, um, and also the thing with hip-hop in those days was that they used to sample old records. So, yeah. you know, you would hear... Booker T and the MGs or the Meters or like an old Dr. John record or something as the beat behind it looped. And so then the task was to find the original records and then learn to play those and then understand where that came from. And in doing so, we could then write our own songs. Um, and, and instead of sampling old records, we would play them ourselves. Hmm. I feel like kids that grow up in small towns that dream of something bigger, something better, uh, and they move to the capital cities, the bigger towns, um, in pursuit of that. What did your move to London and your teams mean for discovering your craft and honing your musical direction? Well, they always said, um, I think it's Dick Whittington, the, the old fable was that, that London is, um, the streets are paved with gold. So obviously you think, <laughs> oh, I'm going to go up and I'm going to become successful and and and, um, and all of that that goes with it. But really, I just wanted to get away from the very boring town that I lived in and any excuse would do. Um, but I managed to get a place at a music college in London and I moved there when I was 16 and I just wanted to meet other musicians and, and, and try other things um, and broaden our horizons, really. And, uh, and London was an incredible place to be, especially in the 90s, because mm. 
there was so much music going on and there was a really healthy indie music scene. Um, so there was tons of bands, of all different kinds of styles and genres. And it was really uh, interacting quite a lot with world music. You know, like there was a very big relationship between what was going on in America and what was happening in London because there was like a cross-pollination. Um, I think that's very much how trip hop started, that we were influenced by American hip hop and then uh, weirdly, we then influenced them uh, and they, you know, there was like a sort of feedback mechanism going on. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so it was good to be involved in that instead of, you know, uh, uh, living in a weird retirement town. <laughs> you know, I spoke to Matt Black from Cold Cut, Cut last season, and he said that the rave culture and electronic music in particular really came into its own in London in the late 80s and in the early 90s. Uh, in, in London particular, what was at the nexus of that movement? Like, how, was, how did London stimulate your creativity? I think because it was the base of a lot of uh, small record labels. So there was a lot of artists coming here to try and get their records released. And then they would have uh, club nights and parties and do shows. And there's there's a lot of little venues in London. So you get to see a lot of bands. I mean, we used to go out pretty much every night and see bands, um, whether they were local London bands or from, you know, an international um territory it, it was just like a real melting pot um i never really liked dance music very much so i wasn't really into house or anything like that i found it too moronic so um i was more into like you know there was a there was a great um wave of kind of like post-punk you know grunge guitar bands like mm. my bloody valentine were really cool and there was really cool bands like stereo lab um who we became friends with and we used to go and see all the time um, and I felt like the, um, you know, the, 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 the combined influence of all of the things made it a very healthy environment to be creative in. Mm. You know, I think it's safe to say that Morchiba's influences were very, very clear from the get-go with Trigger Hippie. Like it was so rooted in Paul's experimental hip-hop beats and then you come in with a super psychedelic slide guitar and I feel like it's a great mix of both of your interests and strengths as a debut single. Would you agree? I would, yeah. And, and you know, I think we've done quite a lot of demos up to that point and we were experimenting a lot. And, uh, and that track really played on our strengths and it really um, gave us a platform to, to, to perform. Um, and when we met Sky for the first time, uh, we asked her to come and we found out that she could sing and we were like, do you want to come and sing on a, on a recording that we're going to do? And that was the first recording that we made. Um, and that pretty much kick-started Morchiba's career. So it was a case of, yeah, getting it right first time. Once the, the three people in the band had, um, had got together, it, it was pretty instantaneous. And we released that as a as like a 12-inch vinyl, um, and it did really well. And we got a record deal, and then we made an album, Who Can You Trust? And, and everything mm. kind of kicked off from there. And we, we promised Sky that we wouldn't play live because she, she had stage fright. She really didn't want to... Uh, sing live especially being the lead singer and um we said to her that we would never play live but then of course we did start playing live you know in the mid 90s there was this explosion of trip hop with bjork and portis head and dj shadow and massive attack and of course Morchiba, really bringing the genre into a commercial success what do you think 
created the environment for the genre to flourish in the early to mid 90s in different places around the world? It was an antidote to the very frantic sounding dance music and guitar music that was out there. It was really nice to have something to chill out to that was psychedelic, that took you on a journey that you could get stoned and listen to, you know, that you didn't have to jump around to. It was, you know, it was a, it was sort of lounge music, really. And, and it'd been a long time since uh, anything that, that resembled easy listening was cool, but suddenly it was, and it was down tempo and you could mix anything over it. I mean, Massive Attack were very influenced by the sort of Jamaican kind of sound mm -hmm. dub. And Porter said were very influenced by Ennio Morricone and, and a more sort of like spy movie stuff, you know, Lalo Schifrin and people like that. We were more influenced by a sort of psychedelic country rock, people like Neil Young and, um, and obviously, you know, Jimi Hendrix and stuff like that. And uh, a big influence on me was Ry Kuda when we, when we made Trigger Hippie. It was, it was very much an homage to Ry Kuda and the way that he played on the soundtracks of the film performance from the late 60s. What is your take on the term trip hop? Do you think, because I mean, obviously over the years, you know, your your sound has expanded and you've you've dabbled in different genres. Do you think it's still fair to, you know, lump you into a category with bands that are trip hop of sorts? Yeah, I don't mind it now. I find it cute. At the time, <laughs> I found it a bit too simplified and I, it was kind of, it didn't really sum us up, but I think it was because we were kind of like new insecure artists and we didn't want to be like hemmed in or pigeonholed. Um, and I feel like maybe on our first record, Who Can You Trust? It was very trip hop. You know, it, it did really fit that defined um, categorization. But then on Big Calm, we really expanded out and we really um, developed our songwriting and um, the musical textures. Yeah. And so we kind of outgrew it quite quickly. Uh, and at that point, we became quite frustrated with the term. But now, years later, I, I, I feel like it's nice to have been involved in, you know, a chapter of musical development. Um, it, it's much nicer to to be, you know, at the forefront of something rather than a footnote. I'm so happy that you mentioned Big Calm because that really saw you widen your genre pool and, you know, take a bit of a step away from trip hop. But it was also a bit of a slow burn album. And that eventually became this multi-million global best-selling record. Uh, and and I read, very interestingly, that you and Paul had quite a debaucherous night. And then that's how the album was born. <laughs> you have to tell me about that. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> true. Yeah, we, we drank a bottle of vodka and we just, we had a competition to see if we could write an album in a night, basically. And, and that was it. Um, we woke up the next day with our heads like on the desk with the you know the notepad and pen oh still there and we listened back to the dictaphone recordings and and the bare bones of a good album was there i think we got a good six or seven songs in that one session and um for some reason just the magic was with us you know and and it was good to get it out that way and we, we actually wrote it before we released our first album because we knew that we wouldn't have any time to do it after that because we would be on the road or we'd be doing promotion. So the idea was to try and make two albums as quickly as possible before we were exhausted. Uh, okay. Was it ever a formula that the two of you used again? I mean, I, I you know, drinking a whole bottle no. of vodka. Like... 
<laughs> every time you record an album. I think it was very good for our health. So, no, we didn't try doing that again. And I think when you're teenagers, you know, well, I was like 18. Uh, Paul was in his early 20s. So when you're that age, you know, everything is kind of an adventure and really fun. But then mm-hmm. as it become became more serious and, you know, record companies were involved and, and we had fans and there was like, you know, outside pressures, it, it wasn't as, as free spirited as that anymore. It was, it was slightly more calculated, which I kind of regret, but there was no way around it. Hmm. But thinking back to, I think it was 2000 where you just released Rome wasn't built in a day off your third album, Fragments of Freedom. And it was everywhere. It like, it wasn't just on radio. It was all over MTV on repeat. Um, it, it, it was absolutely everywhere and it became this huge global anthem. What's going through your head when you're still quite young and you're experiencing your music taking over the world in real time? Uh, we wanted to have a bit of fun. Everything up until that point was reasonably miserable. I mean, in trip-hop in general was quite miserable and it was like everybody wanted us to stay miserable because that was... <laughs> how we sounded and sometimes we were happy you know we'd become successful and i'd fallen in love and i came up with the the chords and like the 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 first bit of the vocal hook on the chorus and i played it to paul and i was like what do you think and he was like well it could be like an old soul record so we we recorded it very much in that um frame and when we made the video we wanted it to look like the scene in the blues brothers where they go Mm. to raise music exchange and everyone's dancing outside You know, we wanted to, to inject some joy into it and also to try and, you know, move away a bit from the trip-hop pigeonhole. Um, and it brought us a lot of success. It, it brought in lots of new fans that didn't really know us before. And in some ways it alienated early fans because they didn't want us to be, you know, happy and full of joy. Um, but <laughs> as we know, humans are, you know, we have a range of emotions and, and, and a whole spectrum of different things going on. And, and music should be able to articulate that. And I, I think Rome Was Built on the Day was just a really um, a celebration of, of how we got to where we were and we were very happy. You know, I think the bottom line with Mochiba is that you've never been easily boxed. Do you think that that's contributed to your success in the sense that event organizers and bookers spotted how easily you could cross over? I mean, you were playing like, blues festivals and electronic festivals and jazz festivals. You, you're like these musical com- chameleons <laughs> in a way. Do you, do you think that that worked to your advantage in a way? Yeah, I guess it did. Um, we didn't really calculate it, to be honest. I mean, we didn't really plan anything at any stage. Um, we were all quite fresh-faced. I guess my brother Paul had more of a plan in the early days of how to initially make a record and get it out there, but... Once we'd, you know, got two or three albums under our belt, we just made music that we felt at the time. Um, music is quite abstract, and it's it's difficult to to actually, you know, talk about what it meant or, or why we did it. It just kind of comes out of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but we were very glad that we fitted on, you know, a lot of different bills. Because, you know, for me, it's great to play the Byron Bay Blues Festival in Australia or the, you know, the Casablanca Jazz Festival in Morocco or, you know, play at like the Fillmore in San Francisco, which is a traditional kind of psychedelic rock place. And I mean, it, we were on some really weird bills. I remember playing like uh, in Ireland at Slane Castle on a bill with 
Queens of the Stone Age and the Foo Fighters and Pixies and stuff. And we were like, what are we doing here? This is really bizarre. Um, but, you know, just if we were on that stage, we'd just turn the fuzz pedal up a bit more and, you know, just rock out a bit. And we would try and kind of fit in and try and make the audience, you know, embrace us because in lots of ways, if you're playing to audiences that don't know you, it's more of a challenge, but it also has bigger rewards because you win new fans and, and you can bring people over to your side. You know, like I've read many stories about you guys over the years and, and you know, you're this chilled, mellow band on stage, but then the after show antics are like would rival the craziest of of musicians. And, and one of my favorite anecdotes that I've read uh, was when your tour manager couldn't do a gig, so you got Primal Screen's manager to help out. And then <laughs> afterwards, like post-match, you end up having to carry their manager like back to the tour bus. And I'm sure that over the years you've collected many stories like that. Uh, if you think about gig or tour shenanigans, what are some of, or what is one story that stands out in your mind as being incredibly extra? Um, it, yeah, I mean, it normally sort of involves psychedelic drugs or something like that, or just drinking too much tequila. I remember once um, we were headlining a, a stage at Glastonbury, I think it was on the Big Calm tour, and uh, a friend of mine had, had just given me like a big bag of magic mushrooms and uh, my guitar technician lined them up on the pedal board and in between each one I was like eating another mushroom <laughs> but they were like crazy strong Hawaiian ones and by about four or five songs into the set I was out of my mind I was hallucinating and there was like 40 or 50,000 people all singing along and not only that they were filming it for the BBC so my mum is sitting at home watching me do this oh live on God. TV and um that was like really quite a, a special experience, you know, and being able to kind of hold it together just about and get through the gig, it was really magical. And obviously, you know, Glastonbury means a lot to, to British bands uh, and to be there and to, to have such a great experience was, um, you know, it, it was like a real peak of, of my life and my career. And, and there's uh, millions of different stories like that, but they, they generally involve, in, involve getting quite high and just about getting away with doing a gig. Was that the and same? What, what happened afterwards as well was that we had to get straight on the tour bus, drive to Heathrow and fly to Los Angeles where we were playing the Hollywood Bowl the next night. And as I got off the plane at LAX, I was still hallucinating. <laughs> oh, my. Was that the same Glastonbury where it was your birthday? Yes. Well, it's always my birthday at Glastonbury because <laughs> it happens at the same weekend every year. Um, so that's another excuse, you see. Oh my God. Well, I mean, exactly. That's the, I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate a birthday on stage at Glastonbury with a whole bunch of psychedelics, with like 40,000, 50,000 people watching you perform. <laughs> yes. I mean, and, and what's good about us is that we're, we're quite confident about what we do. Sky did originally have some, um, fears of being on stage but now she's an absolute um queen on stage she mm. really commands it she's very very confident and so once we're up there everything is fine you know um it's just everything else that's difficult you know playing the music is the easy bit because people always say isn't it a bit strange you know playing in front of so many people and i don't find that hard at all playing the guitar is easy it's everything else that's hard mm. You know, the band has been through some interesting twists and turns with Sky leaving the band and then Paul leaving the band uh, after Sky had rejoined the band. 
With all of that water under the bridge, what did you learn and what experience can you pass on to any aspiring musos about creating the optimal creative dynamic amongst personalities that might be different? Um, I think don't take yourselves too seriously is quite important. Um, early on, most bands think they're really cool and they want to remain really cool. Um, and if you go on long enough, at some point you become not cool. And then if you're lucky, you kind of become cool again. And then sometimes you do go through this oscillation. And once you've been through that wave a few times, you realize that nothing really matters and you just need to concentrate on what you want to do. Um, write some nice songs, play them. And, and there's enough people out there that some people will like your music. So it's kind of, you know, don't take yourselves too seriously and, and try and enjoy it. Um, and sometimes it's hard to get on. I mean, the first sort of 10 years or so, we were stuck on a tour bus all together and we mm. drove each other mad and we had no other experiences outside of this because our whole adult life had been uh, spent that way. So we needed some breaks from each other to, you know, start families and, and have other lives, you know, do other things for a while. Um, so it's also important really to give each other space. Would you say that your bond now with Sky is stronger than it's ever been in a better place than it's ever been? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. We, um, we love working together and, um, we hang out a lot more after hours, if you know what I mean. Before, mm. once we'd finished, we would just sort of go home and that's it. But actually, we socialise quite a lot now. We'll go out for dinner or I'll take my family over to her house for an afternoon and we'll sit in the garden and, and have tea and cake and things. It's all, it's all very civilised. You know, it's very interesting that you mention that Sky had some reservations about performing in the beginning. Maybe she was a bit shy, a bit anxious because when you toured South Africa and I watched you perform in Cape Town in 2018, I mean, she's phenomenal. She really is a powerhouse. And I remember one of my photographers, Laura McCullough, she took the most phenomenal photos uh, of Sky wearing this beautiful red bodysuit with these like almost floor length tassels. And I really felt like Every aspect of that show was so beautifully choreographed from the lighting to her costumes. Are you and her involved in the building of your show at all from the ground up or do you work with a, with, with a larger team? Um, we have a really small crew. We keep it as small as possible. Um, so, yeah, we had a lighting guy uh, who we kind of worked with to try and make the show dynamic. Um, and Sky makes all of her own clothes. So the, the, the oh, outfit wow. she had on, she'd made herself. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, all the boys just kind of wear whatever they've got in their suitcase. But uh, <laughs> she really makes an effort. You know, she spends a good uh, one or two hours before um, getting ready. And I think it really shows, you know, and she really holds the audience's attention and, um, and every show is different. She'll have a different outfit for every mm. show. So she really put the hours in. And I think earlier on before she became involved in music, Sky studied fashion. She went to the London school of fashion and she always wanted to be uh, a designer and make dresses. And so, uh, in a roundabout way, she's finally got there. She's become a singer and a dressmaker. It's so phenomenal. In fact, there's one photo of her holding out her arms and you just, the, the, just these cascading tassels and it's just so beautiful. It's one of my favorite photos that Laura's ever taken. Um, but what, I mean, when you think back 
on your tour of South Africa. Uh, what what did you what were your first impressions of the of the country? We absolutely loved it straight away. It was just amazing. The people were great. Um, it was such a great atmosphere and a vibe. We had a really great time with everybody who welcomed us there. And then on the day of the show, um, I think we were actually a bit nervous because we'd never been there before mm. and we didn't know if anyone would turn up. And then, you know, there was a packed crowd and they were all singing along. And so we were delighted. Uh, and by the end of the show, we were having the time of our lives um, and we really look forward to coming back as soon as we can. Yes, please. As soon as things, oh gosh, the return to sort of like some semblance of normalcy, I'm really missing going to a live show. I can't even imagine how much you must miss performing. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I found it quite difficult. I mean, we were halfway through a tour of Europe when uh, everything kind of got locked down. And so we just had to rush back um, home again, you know, and drop off the tour bus and all the equipment. And we were hoping that we'd be back out again in a few months, but obviously that never happened. That was mm. like 18 months ago or something. And we've just been really hoping things can get back to some semblance of normal. Um, we imagine that we're going to be doing some outdoor festivals this summer in the UK, uh, probably not Europe, but, I'm not sure about indoor shows for a long time yet. It's all very um, up in the air. It's too early to tell. Um, but the one good thing about the lockdown was is that we were trying to start writing a new record. And obviously that put it into, you know, the centre focus of what we were doing. And we immediately um, got on with the job. And it was the first time since we started the band that we actually had so much time on our hands to focus mm -hmm. on recording and writing to get it right, to make sure that they were the best songs that we could possibly make. Um, and because of that, I feel like the new album, which is called Blackest Blue, is the best album we've made in a very long time. And I'm very, very happy with the songs and, and I can't wait for the world to listen to it. I'm very happy that you mentioned Blackest Blue, which is dropping the day after this episode goes live. But, I mean, your debut album has gone on to become one of the seminal albums of the 90s. Talk to me about your creative journey from those formative years to the last studio album, Blaze Away, and now to Blackest Blue that's coming up. Um. In a way, nothing has changed. I'm still influenced by the same kind of things. I still want to make the same sort of noises, you know, sort of a mixture of psychedelic swampy blues with like blunted beats and, and really ethereal melodies. And, um, and in other ways, lots of things have changed. Normally, I, I would say it was probably more personally that we've changed, like our um, experiences influenced our writing a lot. So... Who we are as people has changed a lot since, you know, Sky's had four children. I've had two children. It's kind of, we've really, you know, lived a life. So it's, it's, it's we are different people to when we were teenagers and started the band. Um, so even though we kind of use the same techniques and the same influences, it's the, it's this, what comes out of your heart that changes. So, I mean, when in majority of your interviews, when you talk about your collective influences, there are three names that seem to repeat themselves. The one we've spoken about quite a bit during this interview is Jimi Hendrix. The second one is Wu-Tang Clan. And then the third one is, is Neil Young. Are we going to feel the presence of any of those maestros on Blackest Blue? 
um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, there's a few fuzz guitar solos that, that you might like on this one. And um, I guess, you know, it was influenced a lot by what Sky wanted to write about. And when she was younger, she um, she grew up in a white family. She was adopted and um, her adopted mother used to listen to a lot of old country music, you know, Patsy Cline and people like that. And um, so she has a very sort of like traditional melodic sense when she writes. And and so there's kind of a lot of that on the record. Uh, there's a great track called Killed Our Love, which features a lot of slide guitar. And, and it's a very emotive performance from her. You know, there's, there's a range of um, feeling and emotion that comes out. Um, there is some more like traditional kind of, there's a song called Falling Skies, which was, was influenced quite a lot by the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. um, and the protests that happened worldwide because of it. Um, and that's more of like an acoustic guitar type track. I was quite heavily influenced by uh, Joni Mitchell on that song. I wanted to play guitar and make it sound like Joni Mitchell. So yeah, there, there is all the classic influences on there, yeah. I can't wait. Ross, I just wanted to say thank you very much for joining me today on Text Talks. It's it's an absolute honor to pick your brain and to listen to your stories. And I wish you the best of luck with the new album. It's been my pleasure and it was lovely talking to you. And I really do hope that we get to come to your wonderful country as soon as we can. The darkest road I've ever seen. Chase
shout out to Mochiba for joining us in studio. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Text Talks. Be sure to check out texttalks.com for more episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or listen to Text Talks on all good streaming platforms. Also, a huge shout out to Tom's, the only music store, for being the most incredible technical supplier. From myself, Tex, our producers, Jonathan Engs and Matthew Lewitz, and our research assistant, Al Clapper, catch you on the flip side.